Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to teach a class, write his dissertation, and finally, to get a real job. So today is the second in our ongoing series on the history of the Anthropocene. Um, Remember, the Anthropocene is the period of time in which the Earth itself is most dramatically influenced by human activity. We think of the Anthropocene um, as if from the eyes of a future geologist who reads life on Earth from a slice of rock and can see in that slice of rock what humans have been doing to the Earth. When does it begin and how do we understand our history from this planetary perspective? So this episode, we're going to be talking about one of perhaps the first moments of the Anthropocene in my view. And this is the moment when the modern world really comes into the fore as an actual unified world. This is the Columbian Exchange, the moment when people from Eurasia got into contact once again with people from the Americas. This is the moment when the two great land masses of the Earth that had been separated for thousands of years after the last Ice Age became once more linked together. And we talk about this today not just because it's an important moment from both the perspective of world history and environmental history, The big point today is to talk about how we can understand a history of human culture when we also understand that humans are equally as important as other non-human actors like plants, minerals, microbes, and technologies. But before we go into this, I just kind of want to zoom out and talk a little bit about how teaching this class has been going. Because this podcast isn't just a, 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 a your standard, like, gigantic history of the world podcast. This, this podcast is about what it's like to be in the trenches in a grad program trying to learn this weird job of being a professional historian. And part of that is teaching. We don't really, frankly focus on teaching as much as we do on research. It's not what makes us particularly distinctive, but teaching is really rewarding, um, and it is an essential part of what we do on a day-to-day basis. And this class, as I said before, is like the first class that I have developed from top to bottom. I wrote the syllabus, I'm teaching it, I'm grading it, there's nobody else in the room with any authority. It's all on my shoulders. And I'm kind of unhappy with the way things have been going. It's uh, really the, the the fourth class that we're heading into this coming week. Um, and I have not been connecting with the students in the way that I wanted to. I don't know exactly why. I, I think it's partially me. One of the biggest things about teaching something that you know really deeply and something I try to do in this podcast is that you ha- try to have sympathy for a person who does not have familiarity. So for me, I you know live, eat, drink, and sleep history. It's uh, most of my friends are professional or semi-professional historians. I do a podcast about history for fun, um, and so it's hard for me to remember what it was like before I became a history nerd. 
And before I became a history nerd, you know, I had a decent general sense of what world history was like, but I didn't know the specifics in any real deep way. And I think that's most people. But when we go into the history classroom, we forget that most people do not have this kind of rough facility with uh, these big historical concepts. And so that's what I'm going to be trying to do. Uh, that's what I'll be be trying to do this this coming class is 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 hopefully I will make explicit a lot more of the things that I've been assuming that the students know, uh, including not just stuff about history, but stuff about arguing in class and debating and discussion. And and we'll see how it goes, hopefully uh, uh, by this time tomorrow. When I am done teaching, I will be a little bit happier and have like a little bit more of a positive outlook on how the class will be going. But let's now talk about what's at stake in this day's theme, which is the Colombian exchange and how it affects people's culture. So I'm kind of a cultural historian. I'm interested in the things that people do to give their lives meaning. I'm interested in rituals, in uh, stories, in songs, in gatherings, in sports, all of these things that people use to tell the stories of their own life. Now, at first blush, it seems that this is not an area in which environmental history can really come in many cases. We might have environmental histories of particular cultural moments or cultural moments of particular environmental histories. So you can have, you know, a cultural view of, say, responses to hurricanes or a, uh, 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 an environmental view of a particular cultural practice like coffee drinking. But for me, as I've been getting deeper and deeper into my research and reading, I've come to see even, you know, plain vanilla cultural practices as deeply uh, wrapped up in an environmental story. I'm still struggling on how to tell that story in any coherent and easy way, and even more so to tell the story in research, to find research topics that can explore it. But I'm going to give a stab at it right now. So for me, the central fact is that everything that we do culturally has to involve things. We are not a deracinated, you know, bag of ideas floating through a world. Everything we do involves things. Every single cultural production that we have, every moment of meaning has at its heart a relationship between multiple people and multiple things. And those things and those relationships all have their history. And when you start to bring things seriously into our history of culture, not merely as a material history, but seeing how humans' interactions with objects and with institutions and with repeated processes and with spaces, when we see how those interact over time, I think that inevitably we come to an environmental story, to a story of how humans change the natural world and how, in the process, natural world changes humans. And if this sounds really hoity-toity and highfalutin, hopefully this episode will show that it actually works. So the Columbian Exchange is 
definitely a world historical moment. Before the Columbian Exchange, Italians did not have tomatoes. British people did not smoke tobacco. Um, people in uh, uh, where I live now in California did not have wheat or pigs or cows or horses. There were no cowboys uh, anywhere in America. Uh, there was no um, or very limited metallurgy in the Americas. And even, you know, Indians did not have curry. After the Columbian Exchange, slowly, all of these things got mixed up. Things got brought over from the New World to the Old World and from the Old World to the New World. And in that transference became new again. But the scale of this change is really hard to see. It's, it's hard to see it except as something just really big and unimaginable, this kind of jumping off the cliff. But when we try to look closer, we might see really interesting interactions. Because what's important is not just the huge fact that the different areas of the Earth were finally connected in a meaningful way. That's important. But what's also important is the complicated dance that happened as these exchanges were going on. And that dance, I think, is a profound relationship between humans and the things and the spaces that they use. So to demonstrate this, we're going to look today at two processes, uh, some of which we've talked about on the podcast in the past. First, I'm going to tell the interrelated story of the potato and the pig. And then after that, I'm going to tell another interrelated story of sugarcane and tapioca. Um, in the first, we will be talking about the development of urban life in Europe and the development of factory farming. And in the second, we will be talking about slavery and exploitation. So let's start with the potato. The potato is a New World crop. Uh, it developed in the Andes, and it is probably one of the most complete staple foods in the entire larder of human civilization. Uh, with a little bit of milk, which provides the vitamins A and D that potatoes lack, you could live your whole life just on potatoes. Um, it's pretty easy to grow. And importantly, it grows in places that other staple foods tend not to grow. So if you want to grow rice or wheat or corn, you kind of need a big plain. You know, a nice plain with uh, some to a lot of water and sunlight. And you can grow a potato on the side of a mountain. So it doesn't... Um, crowd out other staple foods. It pushes the area in which you can have agricultural settled communities up mountainsides where for generations or thousands of years, agricultural settled communities did not go. Now, when it transferred to Europe, it became the food first of animals and then of people. It took a while for Europeans to get 
you know, comfortable with eating potatoes. Uh, proverbially, the uh, German uh, Emperor Frederick the Great is one of the people who really pushed the potato uh, uh, as a food source. Uh, he had uh, uh, wanted to give it to his peasants to to to, to stop famines. Um, supposedly, he had big banquets at which potatoes were um, very central, and would even wear potato flowers as like a little nice, you know. Uh, 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 fashion statement. Um, and people followed him because he was the emperor. And, and even today, people go to his grave in Germany and leave garlands of potato flowers. Now, once the potato was uh, uh, starting to make its way into the European diet, it had an amazing knock-on effect. The economic historians Nunn and Chan say that uh, the introduction of the potato into European diets explains 12% of the post-potato population growth, and even more explosively, explains about 50% of the rate of urbanization afterwards. If, like me, you take one of the central facts of early modern European history to be the development of ever larger, ever more sophisticated, ever more specialized cities, then... Perhaps we have the potato to think. Why? Because the potato allowed for denser populations. It allowed for food to be grown in areas where food had not been grown before, and it allowed new people to become farmers. This was not the end of the story. These ever-growing cities had ever-growing demands for forest products. This city is a hungry place, and it's not just hungry for food like the potato, it's hungry for fuel, for energy. And this meant that forest resources within decent reach of cities started to get under tremendous pressure. We see this first in European history in the precocious urbanizing countries like Britain and the Netherlands. And I'll focus on Britain because it's really my area of expertise. Um, as British cities grew, the forests that provided the cities with timber and importantly with firewood started to come under threat. Now, this has a bunch of implications for our story, but I want to take a moment to think about the pig. The pig in Europe had for a long time been associated with forests. Pigs are omnivores like us, and like us, they compete in the same kind of ecological niche. We like the same kind of food. We like the same kind of spaces. We like to live in the same kinds of houses. We're, we're quite piggish uh, uh, from a large perspective. And because of that, pigs have kind of a weird role in agricultural history. Think of like a chicken or a cow. What these animals do is that they convert food that humans can't eat, like grass, uh, into food that humans can eat, like cow or milk. But pigs in Europe didn't do that. They were more likely to be a source of storage of food because they ate the same stuff as we do. They don't, you know, go off and nibble on grass like a sheep or a cow. They eat the same sort of stuff. So in Europe, what happened with the pig for about 8,000 years was that 
pigs would be uh, raised in um, cities or in farmlands. But really their big moment to shine came in certain moments of the fall when nut trees started to uh, produce what's called mast. Uh, We think nuts and acorns and beech uh, beech nuts and stuff like that. Then what would happen is that the farmers would let out the hogs to go uh, browse on these forest uh, 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 resources that were really not that great for humans to gather. So they weren't really exploiting them. So you'd set out your pigs, they'd go get fat on all of the uh, nuts and then come back and you'd kill them. Now... This had a number of effects on the relationship between the pig and the person. One is that because the pigs were out rummaging around in the forest for all this time, it was really hard to control their breeding, especially before we had a very clear idea of of how to, you know, how babies were actually made in a scientific way. What this meant was that the pigs in Europe went off into the forest and they had sex with other pigs, with wild pigs, which we don't call pigs, we call boars. And so the European pig was really boorish. It was big. It sometimes had little tusks. It was bristly. It was violent. Um, if you know, uh, if you live in the South, you know that if you have wild pigs released out in, 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 in for a couple generations, they turn really strong and really feral. And that's because of all the boar DNA that they have in them. But you couldn't help it. If you wanted to keep the pigs behind so that you could selectively breed them for all of the nice domesticated traits that we like in our farm animals, you wouldn't be able to feed them on the nuts and and, and mast and stuff. The other thing that this had an effect on was how we ate pigs. Because pigs were really associated only with these particular times of forest booms and in mass, eating pig was a really, really seasonal activity. It only happened after the pigs were allowed to go off and have their panage and eat all of their nuts. Pig was not an everyday food. It was something you might eat smoked, but really the big pig time was after the season of panage. But all of this was put under threat when you had explosive population growth that was putting pressure on forest resources. Pigs are forest animals. That's where they get their food. If there are fewer forests, and especially fewer forests close to where people are living, then the animal does not have as much of a role to play. But we eat pigs all the time. Pigs are not a marginal foodstuff like some other, you know, specifically rural animals like, you know, partridges or pheasants or, or rabbits. Pigs are one of the really important foodstuffs in the modern world. They are the other white meat. Why? How did that happen? We don't send them off today to do their panage on the forests of Oakland. To tell that story, we have to look across the vast Eurasian plateau, not to the Americas, but to Asia, where there was another lineage of pigs that split from the European lineage about 8,000 years before, where the European pig was big and wild and a sometimes food 
the Asian pig was domestic and small and pot-bellied and cute. It lived in the home eating shit, human, human feces, and house scraps. It was so associated with the household economy that the Chinese character for home, uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but it's J-I-A, Jia. The Chinese character for home is a pig with a roof on top of it. The year of the pig is considered a year that's especially auspicious for family life. The pig in Asia was a small household animal, domesticated truly in the sense of the word, which you know if you've ever interacted with a cute little Vietnamese pot-bellied pig. Uh, my dad's ex-girlfriend had one named Sir Francis Bacon, um, which was, you know, about as cute as the cutest dog that you have ever seen. The story of how we get the modern pig, the pig that everybody eats all the time, begins in the 1720s, when because of growing international trade, Asian pigs came to Britain. And here, enterprising, you know, curious-minded agricultural farmers started to interbreed their wild, uh, nasty big pigs, which for some time had been uh, being fed on uh, non-forced resources like the uh, uh, byproducts of bakeries and breweries, uh, and uh, sometimes being fed on legumes that had been introduced into the British agricultural system as a nitrogen-fixing plant. But these people started to intermix the DNA of that boorish European pig with the fast-growing, domestic, cute Asian pig. And this experimentation with this new genetic material led to a massive thriving of different varieties of pigs that were good for a ton of different purposes. They were all faster growing, they were nicer, they were easier behaved. Um, one was called a lard swine, and the lard swine was so big and fat it couldn't move, and it was used uh, in the time before petroleum products as a source of grease and oil. It was just a big fat tub of lard. But the pig that we eat today, I think primarily from Yorkshire, was developed in Britain as an admixture of the eastern pig and the western pig. And this was a far more efficient animal. You were able to feed it not just on beech nuts out in the forest, but on the uh, 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 byproducts of the new agricultural economy. You could feed it on the slop from a brewery. You could feed it on sewage. You could feed it on potatoes. And you could feed it on the legumes that were being introduced into the highly efficient British agricultural system. So let's fast forward to the new efficient agricultural system of America. Here, with the development of the factory farming of the modern pig is where you get a new form of human and pig interaction. Most of us, I don't think, have ever seen a pig for any length of time. I can, in fact, remember the last time I saw a live pig. Um, it was back in 2008, and I was at the Minneapolis uh, State Fair, made Minnesota State Fair, 
one of those big f- agricultural fairs, and I was on a date or a pseudo date uh, with girls that I liked, and I remember going into the birthing tent. They had all of these pregnant animals who would birth, and I watched a gigantic sow. Man, in my memory, it must have been 12 feet long, but that can't be right. Can a gigantic sow giving birth to piglets? And I was stunned at how alien, how massive, how powerful, how muscular this animal that I thought I knew looked like. It was nothing like the drawings I'd made on piggy banks. Piggy banks, of course, coming from China, being a symbol of domestic prosperity. But why is that? Because today, this Eastern-Western biracial pig is stored away from human eyes, fed on soybeans and other agricultural products to grow incredibly quickly. The factory-farmed pig is the second most efficient meat source after broiler chickens. For every three calories you feed a factory farm pig, you get one calorie of pig. That is an amazingly efficient system. But at its heart is a cruelty. The pigs are kept in in completely inhumane situations, and we never have a relationship with them. Whereas in Europe, uh, back in the day, pigs were a seasonal food, something that marked particular ceremonies and rituals and seasons. Now the pig is just kind of there. We eat it uh, in our Korean barbecue or for breakfast or as a, as a pork chop, but it's not something with a great deal of meaning. Now I want to switch from pigs and potatoes to a story of sugar and slavery and starch. And we're going to start with a uh, starchy tuber, uh, which is called manioc. Depending on how you prepare it, it has a ton of different names. Um, Cassava, yucca, tapioca. Um, It depends where you eat it and how you make it, what, what, what its name is. And you have probably eaten it quite a bit. Uh, It doesn't really taste like much, which is one of its appeals, Um, but it is the second highest carbohydrate plant that humans eat after sugarcane. You get it in your bubble tea. It is the bubbles in bubble tea. If you were a British child, especially a British child in the 19th century, you would have eaten tapioca in your milk puddings. Um, You also might have eaten tapioca starch in particular Asian noodles, and if you live in the Philippines, I'm pretty sure the tapioca is a big deal. But tapioca is incredibly important for the way that the world eats. It's not just the bubbles in your bubble tea. Uh, It is the fifth biggest staple food on earth after rice, wheat, corn, and potatoes. The average human being eats 42 calories of tapioca or manioc a day. Just a little bit of a nibble, but it is still incredibly important. Um, We make 176 million tons of manioc a year, and manioc is biggest in Africa, especially the Congo, where it is the chief staple. But manioc did not come from Africa. Manioc, uh, this starchy tuber, which is really drought-tolerant and highly productive, was originally an American 
plant grown by the Tipu people. So how did one of the most important staple foods of Africa come to Africa from the Americas? The answer is the Portuguese. The Portuguese first came to Brazil looking for gold and other fancy, shiny, metallic resources. And unlike the Spanish, they did not find much gold and they did not find much silver. So what they turned to instead to get their money to make these colonies profitable was the other source of gold in the early modern period, sugarcane. Now, when we think of sugarcane in the early modern period, we, we shouldn't think of sugarcane as a cheap commodity. Sugar was in part magical. It was prescribed as a drug. Think of your life if you had not eaten refined sugar ever, and then all of a sudden, somebody gave you a little packet of it. It is amazing. Geopolitically, sugar was closer in character to oil, an essential thing that people would go to war over. Now, sugarcane is like this big grass that's originally from Southeast Asia. Um, But Europeans were looking for places to grow it in areas that they could control, places that were similar in biota to Southeast Asia, you know, nice, humid, jungly, wet sort of places. Sugarcane, the Portuguese thought, would be great for Brazil. And so they moved sugarcane in. Now, the problem with sugarcane is that it is brutal. It is a really difficult and gross plant uh, to interact with. It requires a lot of irrigation, which can um, put its workers at risk for getting um, mosquito-borne and waterborne diseases like yellow fever and malaria. And it's just really hard work. It's a sort of hard work that you could easily work somebody to death doing if you were not sensitive and careful. And I'm going to give a spoiler alert here. The Portuguese in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries were not sensitive and careful when it came to the lives of others. So for the Portuguese, they started to revise the economy of the traditional peoples of Brazil. They would send the men to work in the sugarcane fields, often working them to death, which was easier to do because uh, there were a lot of uh, European diseases that were ravaging the populations. And the women, they had at a much greater intensity, manning the manioc fields. Now, manioc is very easy to grow. It lasts for a long time in the soil. It grows very quickly. It's very high in starch. But the problem with it is, is that it is actually really deadly poisonous. If you eat manioc that you just get from the store without processing it, especially if it's the bitter variety, you could even get cyanide poisoning and die. To actually use it, it requires a process of soaking um, and drying that uh, uh, gets out some of the cyanide by binding it to the water. And I, It's a complicated process, but it can be m- m- as easy as uh, smushing the manioc, covering it up in water, laying it flat on a tarp, and letting it dry off. Or it can be as uh, rigorous as, uh, you know, scraping it, boiling it, pounding it, and fermenting it, and drinking it as some sort of, you know, fermented uh, uh, manioc beer. Now, this rough treatment decimated the population of the natives of Brazil, and the Portuguese 
had to find some sort of labor. Now, nobody wants to work in the sugarcane fields, and nobody would do it voluntarily, so they needed to find unfree labor. And the Portuguese turned their sights to their trading relationships in Africa and began to bring to South America African slaves to work on the sugarcane plantations. And this is how we get the transport of manioc from South America to Africa. Because the Portuguese brought in their holds of their ships lots of manioc starch. This was because when the slaves got to the ports in West Africa, they were really sick often, undernourished, thin. And if they weren't fed and fed well and fed quickly, they might not make the really rough journey to South America. And so the Portuguese traders took large amounts of manioc in their stores, and it was often the first thing that a newly enslaved person would be fed when they got into Portuguese custody. And the plant itself began to spread into Africa. And in fact, often the plant spread quicker than the Europeans themselves. Uh, when European traders would reach particular places, they would find the people already growing manioc. And the growth of manioc had, in a perverse way, a benefit to the cycle of slavery. Slavery was often done as a result of internal warfare in Africa. And the really, you know, incredibly easy a, a, a cultivation of manioc, not the preparation, but the cultivation meant that there were more people around who had spare time to wage war. More war meant more slaves. More slaves meant more money. More money meant more weapons. And that meant more war. Furthermore, manioc is, you know, really hard to see. It's It, it grows under the ground. It's safe from um, you know, food burning or pillaging in a way that other crops were not, which meant, you know, sometimes wars would end because uh, the food resources would be depleted, but that did not happen with manioc. Manioc encouraged the cycle of violence that slavery fed on. And this is how manioc came to be one of the key staples in Africa. And manioc also spread east uh, to Portuguese settlements in Asia, which is why it shows up so much in Asian cuisines like bubble tea and, and particular kinds of noodles. But it became important as well during the 19th century when steam shipping led for there to be an international trade in goods. This is where the British school children of the 19th century got their tapioca puddings from, from plantations in Asia that had gotten a taste for manioc by Portuguese colonizers. And in this story, and in this story of the development of pigs and potatoes, I want to show how human decisions, human cultural tastes, human habits and rituals are created by and in turn create bits of the natural world. British people who got a new taste for coffee, wanted something to sweeten the coffee with. And so they started to buy more and more sugar. This drive for sugar pushed 
people to try to exploit new sugar resources. That drove the need for new kinds of workers, new kinds of international trade. And part of this discovery of a technology that would work was the discovery of feeding these workers on manioc. Manioc spread where the sugar slavery continuum also spread. It was as much a part of it as the sugar was. It provided the calories that the sugar workers would use to cut and boil and chop and grow the sugar cane that would be eventually part of the tea sets of the 18th century well-heeled British person. The culture that we normally think of as something purely human is intimately tied up with this story of objects. And so the big cultural changes that we see in the modern world, I think, are part of the Anthropocene. They're part reflective of this massive change to the way that the world is. Of course there would be an enlightenment. Of course there would be revolutions. Of course people would think that the world was changing more than it ever changed before, because it was. Well, I hope that this has been uh, fun or informative, and I hope that my class tomorrow goes really well. Um, as always, you can check out the website, historian.live, for reading notes. Uh, I will give links to the papers that taught me all of these things about pigs, potatoes, tapioca, and sugar. Uh, if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Tell your friends about us. Share us on social media. Uh, you know, write me a letter and, and guess where I live and send me something. It is really important. Um, these days, we spend a lot of time with our imagined communities of friends and well-wishers uh, on the internet, and we never get to see their faces. I want to give a shout out to my new mother-in-law, Paula, who sent me a text that she liked last week's episode. So if you do that, uh, 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 other listeners, you might get a shout out as well. Um, thanks, as always, to Duncan Barton, um, who is now, unfortunately, in Ohio. We are so sorry to have lost you in Oakland. He is the one who made our lovely art album art. And also, no episode could end without me thinking Jonathan Lear, uh, who has a new album out um, about his dog. Actually, it's not his dog. He's just friends with it. Uh, Jonathan Lear made the music that opens and closes our show. And thank you to all of my students this year who are really helping me think about how I am teaching in new ways. Uh, I'll speak to you uh, next week, when we will be talking about the origins of the Industrial Revolution. It's basically a fight between people who think the Industrial Revolution happened because people were smart, and people who think the Industrial Revolution happened because of coal. Spoiler alert, I think it was coal. Thanks very much. <laughs>